G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Well, I can tell you that this is definitely a first. This episode was recorded on Wadarung country and uh, I sat down with Trent Thorne. He's the first person I can say we've ever interviewed who is going to take on climbing Mount Everest, which is just insane. Right now as we speak, Trent is over in Nepal and if I had to take a guess, I think he'd probably be starting his uh, slow walk from um, where they landed up towards base camp to begin his altitude training. But I thought it was fascinating. I think we've chatted to lots of people kind of post what they've done when it comes to accomplishments, but this one was really looking at, well, what's ahead? How do you face uncertainty and build that mindset around, this is what we're about to do. There's going to be lots of challenges, lots of obstacles, but how do you make sure you set yourself up for the best chance at success? And so let's get into it. Over the last month or so, I've chatted to a couple of really interesting people. I had Ned Brockman, uh, I had Tim Jarvis, so two people who have pushed their bodies to the absolute extreme. And it's really interesting to sit down with someone kind of before they actually go and do what many people, I guess, may think seems like an amazing idea, but I'm really keen to understand a little bit more about your story, but also taking on Everest. Yeah, well, um, I'd like to say that there's there's a really cool reason why I'm doing this, and that will be a complete and utter lie and fabrication. But um, I, look, I've been doing climbing in a sort of semi-regular way since about 2011. Um, I had some long service leave owing to me in 2010, 2011, so I was looking to go and utilise that leave. And I saw something in a – I can't even remember it was now, but it was in, in some sort of glossy magazine about it this particular mountain in a national park in the United States called Grand Teton. It's just south, it's in Wyoming, just south of Yellowstone, very close to the spectacular town of Jackson Hole. And the range itself, the, the mountain, the Grand Teton range, it's a very, very beautiful mountain range. And, and a lot of people would have seen it um, before in pictures, they just probably don't realise what it actually is. And anyway, this basically, this, this magazine article just made it clear, you could climb this mountain you turn up, you do about three days of training, and then you got the opportunity to climb. I said, this is with no background, and I don't know what it was in me that just went, that looks interesting, I'd like to give that a crack. And I'm not someone who's done, I've done a lot of trekking before that, like, you know, Kokoda Trail and PNG and things of that nature, but nothing of this type. So you know, there was something that just piqued my interest, and I signed on for that, went and did it, and absolutely loved it. I suppose when I was there... I started asking questions of the guides, you know, what should I be doing as a next step sort of thing? And they made some suggestions because in our part of the world, New Zealand is clearly um, a, a very uh, significant venue for these sort of, you know, pursuits. And obviously there's some incredible climbers that have come out of New Zealand. So they pushed me in that direction. And so I headed over the year after that, 2012, and, and did a two-week alpine mountaineering course. So that really sets you up to do not everything, but it really does give you a very good base. And a lot of these climbs that you undertake, they do require you to at least have done something of that nature or, or they want to see your climbing CV. And by that, they want to know the expeditions you've been on the mountain to climb because it sort of shows the level of expertise and skill. So, look, without getting into all the details, look, we made traverse. So that, that then led me to four years of trying to climb Mount Cook, Araki in New Zealand, which I failed four years in a row. Um, which is a very humbling experience, but also taught me a hell of a lot about mountain climbing. 
you know, it's the mountains always well and truly in control and, and we are just just a bit player on a particular day as to whether it will allow you to to ascend to the top. You know, as I've moved beyond there, gradually, you, you, you get to meet the most incredible people. You're sitting in tents. You're sitting in cabins a lot of the times. So you're having conversations about other pursuits. So that's where some of these other climbs have sort of gradually fitted into my sort of forward thinking. But the, the Everest one really only came to bear because I was with a group of people. I climbed a mountain in New Zealand, sorry, in Alaska. It's the highest mountain in North America called Denali. Most people know the old name of Mount McKinley. It's a brute of a thing. It's it's not particularly high, like, I mean, in the scale of um, some of the other mountains, it's only in the range of sort of 6,200 metres. But it's a tough climb from slightly from a technical point of view, depending on which route you take, but it is known as a very cold mountain because of the latitude you're at. And like all climbs, you, you get to a certain point, you're waiting for the weather to be appropriate. And we spent a lot four or five days up at our high camp there and every day it was about minus 25, and one day dipped down to minus 50, then you're in a tent. Um, you know, it's that's where life gets hard, and you start realising every single thing you're doing is hard, you know, and everything I owned effectively that was important was in my sleeping bag because if you left it out of the sleeping bag, it was buggered, you know. Um, melt the snow to make your water, that's got to stay in your bag because if you're, your ice freezes in your water bottle, well, you're not climbing, you know, because basically it, the effort to unfreeze that, you know, will take an hour or two and everyone's left sort of thing. So everything you're doing is sort of focused on getting in your little cocoon and just trying to sort of grit your teeth and get through what is not enjoyable conditions, I can tell you. Anyway, long story short, all of the group of, the group of people I was with on that trap, they're all younger than me. They're all probably 30, 35 they were already talking about Everest at that point. And I was just going, guys, just chill out. We've just completed this. How about we just soak this in for a bit? They were all amped up and really wanting to sort of go and do Everest in 2020. And I just said, go away. I really just want to maybe have a year off and 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 contemplate what I've just gone through. Not that I didn't, but I did. But I, it, I was so glad I summited Denali because there was no way I was going back to that mountain. It was just... It was a true grind. But then obviously the pandemic hit and and one of the team members sort of approached me last well, a year or so, 18 months or so ago now and floated the idea of Everest and Lotsey and Noopsy, which is the three, there's a, a, a particular kind called the Triple Crown, which not many people have done. And I said, look, sure, like I'm actually now interested. I've had time to process it all and it's the next challenge. So, yeah, we, we started focusing on that for a while, the Triple Crown. Um, we've, we've carved one of the mountains out, which I'm happy to say I was a bit scared of climbing. It's, it's, it's Everest and the two mountains beside it, effectively, but one of them is Noopsy. is not climbed a lot, and there's a reason why it's not climbed a lot. And after a number of considerations, which we can get into, I, as I said, I'm man enough to say it scared the shit out of me, and I didn't um, – I'm happy I'm not climbing it, put it that way. <laughs> so my knowledge of Everest goes, what was the bloody movie which came out? Was it last year or the year before? And it was the story of the Sherpas. Well, there was one called Sherpa, um, which is a one. couple of years old. Um, or you mean 14 Peaks uh, with Nim's Day, the one? Who- That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've climbed one of those? No, I haven't. I haven't because they're the 14. I've not climbed any. The, the highest mountain I've climbed is a mountain in Argentina called Aconcagua, which is about 7,000 metres. So that's the highest I've climbed to. So 
that movie covers all the 14, 8,000 metre peaks. So, no, I, this will be new terrain for me on this trip. I, I don't know what's going to happen above 7,000 metres. It's, you know, it's just suck it and see. In the- <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, the correct analogy for it. I want to know, going back to you, you mentioned you started this adventuring in kind of 2011. As a kid, you're obviously involved in agriculture now as an agri-lawyer, otherwise we probably wouldn't have crossed paths. But as a kid, kind of one, where did you grow up? And two, were you into these adventures and climbing trees and everything? Well, slightly different, but yes. Look, I grew up in Toowoomba, so you know there's a there is a, a heritage there of, from an agricultural point of view. My parents, mum, mum was a secretary slash PA, and dad owned a very successful bakery in Toowoomba. Most people, if they're from that region, would remember mum's bakery, which was on the main street there for about fifty years. So my grandmother started, and dad, dad ran it for another twenty six years, and it sort of wrapped up in around 90, 1987. My parents split up and they went in their separate ways and I stayed in Torma then for my penance, I suppose, at, at boarding school. So I, I remained in Torma while they went to warmer climbs. I'd always, I've always loved running. Like I, I'm not a, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a good sportsman in any way, shape or form, but the one thing that I'm okay at and I don't, I can't explain it is, is middle distance and long distance running. So, and I do remember mum to her, she's never let me forget it. Mum went on holidays and left me with my grandmother when I was 10 years old. And it was 1982, so it was around the time the Brisbane Commonwealth Games had just been on. Robert De Costello had just won the marathon, that fantastic race, which people of my vintage would well and truly recall. And there was the Toowoomba Marathon being held in the outskirts of Toowoomba about a month or so after the Commonwealth Games. And I just, when mum left, I just told my grandmother, I said, mum's approved me running in that. And Nan just went, oh, okay. So Nan had no idea. I had no, I did no training and I just fronted up to the start line. I remember with my cricket whites, which is just absurd in hindsight, because I, I choose, like this is back in the days before running was really a big thing, you know. So I just had my sneakers and my cricket whites and I just went and ran a marathon. So at the age of 10 was the first marathon I ran. The cricket whites I remember specifically because I had, because I was stubbies or like, you know, they, they didn't have exactly the appropriate uh, inner thigh. So they were very heavily stitched, if you understand what I mean. And I had two significant sort of divots, out of, and I mean proper divots out of both thighs because they weren't exactly made for running. But you didn't know any better back then. And I didn't know any better because I just literally just went out and ran. And I'm not going to sit here and say it didn't hurt. It hurt, but it, it was a bug. I've always had. So since then, I've enjoyed running and endurance sort of events. I've had my periods where I've I've done a lot of injuries to myself. So over, over the years that I've had periods of inactivity and, you know, and, and I've really embraced that in, a, in an enormous way and packed on the weight and then sort of gone the other direction. So this has been a period, but like particularly since about, I'd say 2006, once I discovered, like I'd never had done hiking in any way, shape or form. A group, as I said earlier, we got this idea of going to Kokoda in PNG. So some mates did that and I just loved that. Like hiking to me just sounded like such a weird thing to do, but it's something I absolutely love now. So like I, all the major hikes around Australia, I haven't ticked them all, but I've done most of them. And most weekends... If it wasn't training for this, I'm generally heading out to the scenic rim around Brisbane or up to the Glasshouse Mountains. You know, anywhere I can go, I just love climbing up things. I 
you know why or, or heading around bush or going into the rainforest or something like, i just love it and it just keeps you fit so i've got a, a group of friends who are every other weekend i'm subbing one in for another one and i'm just sort of doing that almost every weekend i'll be going for a hike yeah wow what like what is it what's the actual feeling i guess beyond just the challenge like what does it actually give you going out into these remote areas uh well i do strangely enough, i suppose it's probably a little bit to do with my job i do enjoy just the quiet time and look pre-covid and and this is again i just i don't want this to be a criticism of COVID, but pre-covid a lot of the hikes i would do particularly around the scenic rim people don't realize the incredible trails that we've got and look i appreciate some of them you have to drive an hour and 45 minutes that doesn't bother me you've got to get up early to go and do that doesn't bother me and a lot of these trails, I would generally, sometimes I do them on my own, but that's not entirely appropriate sometimes. Like so more often than not, it's just me and one other person. And that's the only other person you see all day. There's a particular trail up at Mount Barney. I won't bore you with the details, but I've done it 50 plus times and 55, I know, at least. And some days, as I said, you won't see another person. And this is, it's a 16K loop. It's a fantastic, it's a real painful grind. And that's why I like it because I like pain of it. But you just don't see anyone. But now, after COVID, and particularly during COVID, when we're all locked down, obviously, as they move the circles a bit wider, you're able to get out to these things. But like I was turning up to these car parks and there'd be 20 cars parked there. And as I said, and that, I'm not, it's not my mountain. I'm not sitting in the same way. But it, it's, I'm also glad that people are seeing how great at the southeast corner is and what there is out there but it's certainly not as serene as it used to be you know you get to the top of these things and you know there's 15 other people there it feels a bit weird so, as i said sometimes you have the mountain to yourself effectively so look like it's here actually because it's just the quietness of it all um and probably just the feeling it gives you it's a bit hard to describe just that and most people would understand that if they enjoy fitness activities you know just that pushing your body like some of these things some of the, look it depends on what you're going to do sometimes deliberately go and do things that are more scenic than giving you that necessarily deep burn and that's fine you don't have to go and flog yourself every time but other things you know you're specifically going out to just flog yourself and sometimes that's okay so you've done quite a number of big mountains and as i said to you on the phone the other day i had this experience well, I'm not very good at heights. So as much as I think, oh, wow, it'd be incredible to go to the highest place in the world and all these other places, there's absolutely no way I'm doing it. So I better find another challenge. We'll come to that later. Uh, but in, for you, with these different climbs, there's so much training and preparation involved in it. Do you get to sit and enjoy, I guess, the accomplishment? Or as soon as you finish, you on to the next one? Well, no. no, no well, no, I, I do... There is moments where you really have to pull yourself out of what you're doing. And I think I explained the other day, there's not necessarily some days, and there's a lot of days where you're doing things where you've just really got to be absolutely hyper-focused on what you're doing. And even if you're walking along a glacier, it might be flat. And you can get into a day, like everyone daydreams. I'm not going to sit here and say that that I have hyper-focus on particularly days like that where you're walking across something relatively flat or with a gentle incline. But even on things like that, particularly New Zealand and where I'm about to go, once you move up through the Kumbu Ice Fort, you're walking up what's called the Western Coombe, um, there's crevasses. You, you, they're basically crevasse fields. And obviously, people who are not initiated, that's just like a the snow covers over the top of the, the, the holes in the glacier where the glacier moves down, it cracks. 
And some of those crevasses, most of them, you can't see the bottom of them. I know in New Zealand, some of them are 200 metres deep. The glaciers themselves are 600 metres deep, you know, so... You've got to have your wits about you all the time because then you're roped up. There's a reason why you're roped up because if you fall into a crevasse, you've got to start doing things literally immediately. Like the other person on the other end of the road has got to do something and I won't bore you with the details of what they're going to do. Um, and I failed crevasse rescue. I'm happy to say in when in my two-week course, I, I failed it. You know, if I fall down a crevasse, there's going to be some problems. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say to you is you're focusing on what you're doing, but there is points where you get to and you sort of, you stop and you pause, either you've clipped into something and you know you're safe, and then you can actually go, okay, I'll have a look around now, you know. And you do sometimes, I I do find it quite illuminating because you go, shit, this is a weird place to be standing. Like okay, that's happened more often than not. It's like, because you're on your own. When I say you're on your own, you've got someone else that might be 50 metres up the road. Uh, you know, they're doing their thing, you're clipped in, either belaying them or whatever. But it's very rare you're standing together with someone. There's a reason why you've got a rope and it's at a certain tautness. So you do have a lot of time to think for yourself and think about things. And as I said, that there's been many times where I've been standing there going, this is a very peculiar place to be standing. And so I think I said to you the other day, there's something in my system that doesn't frighten me. Like it doesn't matter what I'm standing on, exposure, it can be sitting on a cliff and I don't know what it is. I don't get sweaty palms. I just, it's not that I don't fear it. If I didn't fear it, you know, you shouldn't be there. That's an irrational level of bravado that I think is dangerous. I, I, I do get, I do feel fear. I, I often, at the moment, I have no fear about what I'm about to embark on, but I guarantee you when I stand at the bottom of something like the Lotsy face and it's like, you know, I know we're doing podcasts, but obviously it's a steep, very steep ice face. And I'm sure when I stand and believe it, because you can't get an appreciation for it on pictures. Saying you stand there, I'm sure I'm going to go, shit, I've got to walk up that a couple of times and come back down. So I'm sure there will be periods of time where I'm going to go, what have I, what have I signed up for here? And that's natural. You know, if, if I don't, I wouldn't be human, you know. So in terms of a bit of context, let's let's talk to the actual, let's call it the mission, the trip. Let's talk to that period of time. How long is it? How much time do you have? How many chances do you get at an ascent? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's 62 days. I land in Kathmandu. We spend two days doing admin, which effectively is divvying up our gear. The gear is very regimented in terms of what you need to bring, and and I won't go into that in all the detail as you want to, but effectively we take all the gear then, so we get in a helicopter to look like, uh, on the third day, and look was that you would have seen Instagram photos, a lot of the most dangerous airport in the world, blah, 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 because it's one of those ones that sort of the runway goes off the edge of the, the mountain. So we're not flying in on a fixed wing, which I'm quite grateful for. We're flying in a helicopter, which will be fantastic too. I think it takes an hour and 20 minutes, so it'll be up through incredible river valleys, and I, I think that'll be one of the highlights of the trip, frankly. But when we get there, the admin from the two days before will come into play in that Another of our big bags, our duffel bags, will go on the back of yaks and they will just go straight to base camp, 100 and something k's up the trail, and we will ourselves have effectively a day pack and another small bag that sort of just keeps moving up the trail one day ahead to get to the little inns that we stay in at the night time. So we spent two weeks slowly walking to base camp, a traditional base camp hike, but with a few excursions up, where most people base camp take the easiest route, and I say that in the nicest possible way, we are deliberately 
going up over a few passes to try and build in a bit of acclimatisation. So once we get to base camp, we do a couple of days of crevasse training. I think most people have seen Everest pictures. There's a lot of ladder crossings through the icefall, the Kumbu icefall. So they teach you how to cross the ladders and things of that nature. So there's a bit of training with that. Um, and then what happens is effectively you start what's called the rotations up the mountain. And most significant peaks, you climb them twice in the sense that, look, you can start at the bottom and go straight to the top if you want, but your ability, your body just physiologically, most people, unless you're a Sherpa, just can't deal with the acclimatisation and the lack of oxygen without sort of significant time spent at those, those altitudes. So what's been done over the last 30, 40 years is there's been developed this methodology of I'll explain it to you. So you've got base camp, there's four camps up the mountain. On the first rotation, we go through the Kumbu Icefall to the top of the Icefall, and then there's a camp there, Camp 1. And we will go to that camp and spend a night, maybe two nights, just acclimatising at that level. And then we go back to base camp and we rest a day or two just to, again, recover our blood, our bodies recover at the more oxygen-rich level of 5,800 metres. I know that's Sounds stupid, but you keep doing that. So we have to level camp two, come back down, then go to camp three and come back down. And then on the final rotation, you go all the way up to camp four, the high camp in the saddle, the South Cole. You basically then, after spending the night at 10 p.m. that night, we will start the summit attempt. So we will leave in the dark and we will head to the summit of Everest, hopefully. And again, I'm not going to be putting any time frames on this, but you'd be, I want to be in there just after sunrise, six to eight o'clock in the morning. For the selfie. <laughs> For a lot of selfies, yeah. And and the plan is to spend uh, half an hour on the summit, um, and that's a half hour I will be, you know, absolutely um, trying to be as diligent as I can at getting the, the photos and the things you have to do out of the way, but then actually just soaking it in. And actually, because you do hear a lot of people get up there and they – they can't remember it, you know, because they're just doing too much. And I really want to try and discipline myself if I'm fortunate enough to stand up there, really try and take it in because it's not a place that many people ever get to experience. As I've explained to you, I've signed on as well to climb Lotsi. So I then, all things going to plan and my energy levels feeling sufficient, I go back down to the South Cole. We rest a couple of hours and then we go again. So we go up. It's Lotsi, which is the fourth highest mountain in the world. So that's that's across. So they're basically beside each other. And Lotsi's 8,500 change. So two, it's probably the hardest climb. It's ever, like, I'm not trying to say Everest is not a difficult climb. It's not technically the more difficult parts of Everest are up the Lotsi face through the ice wall. But from the South Cole to the summit of Everest, it's not. Everyone's heard of the Hillary Step. That's about the most technical part of the climb, and it's a very, very short 12-foot section and right at the top. The Lotsi Couloir, which is sort of like a gully heading up to the Lotsi Summit, is a very steep ice sort of chute, effectively. So you're doing a lot of... It's like basically climbing an ice ladder. So that one is going to hurt. My thinking was, and again, this might sound irrational, was, you know, I've just wanted to make it a bit harder. So I didn't want to just do Everest. I thought, okay, how do I make this just that little bit harder? And I know that sounds stupid, but that's probably as much thought as I put into it. Obviously, most people just go and try and do Everest. I'm probably about 5 to 10% try and do what we are trying to do. So look, I might get to, I might finish Everest and go, I am gassed. I am taxed. I cannot do this. And I will just head back down. 
And if that happens, I'll determine how I feel at that time. But yeah, my entire plan at this stage is to do the double. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. But is part of that, to me, it actually also sounds like a bit of a rational piece as well where you can actually split up the climbs. So it's like it's not just all or nothing on Everest. It's actually like, well, Everest is one part of it, but actually this other climb, Lotsi, is maybe taking the focus off Everest as well? Yeah, look, I, I suppose part of the thinking as well is just pure expediency. It's like, well, I'm up there, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you because, know, again, I think I might have said to you the other day, this is – this is a one and done for me. I'm I'm not really planning on um, venturing back. I, and look, I know that people get the bug and they they want to keep pursuing these goals and dreams. And look, and I I plan on probably climbing a few more things. As I mentioned earlier, Mount Cook is still burning bright in the back of my mind. And look, I I don't know what I'm going to do after this. I know I was hiking last week with one of my friends who's actually going on this trip with me uh, back and. She's so much younger than me and her enthusiasm is overwhelming. And she's already starting to throw out names of other places. And I, again, had to just shut her down and just say, look, I'm, this is my sole focus. I'm hiding or talking about any other mountains. But there has, as I said, look, a lot of things, there really wasn't a lot more thought going to it other than, you know, it's there, it's beside it. I might as well have a crack at it too. And visit the neighbours. I just did a quick Google. As of July 2022, only 11,346 people of more than 8 billion have got to the summit of Everest. <laughs> yeah, well, see, I, I haven't looked at any of that, obviously. Um, yeah, well, look, and it, it's gotten, Everest has gotten a bad rap over the last couple of years, I think fairly in some respects. Um, the Nepalese government, and I'll be very cautious about what I'm saying here, they it, it, look, it's a poor country, and I get they need to maximise revenue in some areas, and this is one of their main revenue streams. So there's there's been an emphasis. People saw all those bad, bad photos from 2019. They've started to, obviously COVID's had a big impact as well, but they've started to introduce some new rules to sort of try and reduce that happening again. Like 2019 was bad for a couple of reasons because firstly and one thing we didn't talk about earlier when you're talking about the schedule that i'm about to undertake there's a lot of weather window in that schedule because you're clearly for me i need two clear summit days in a row and that particular year 2019 there was only three good summit days for the season so hence why you had all these people sitting down at base camp and they all had to sort of try and summit on three days the last couple of years I've been watching YouTube videos of people going up on the summit. There's been very few people. So it just depends upon the season. But the Nepalese government has introduced things like six and a half thousand. You've got to climb to six and a half thousand metre peak before you can attempt Everest, which 
frankly, I don't know how that wasn't sort of something there before. Some of the guys I've spoken to over the years, you know, they would talk about people at base camp. This this was their first climb. They're going doing Everest first thing out of the gate, which you know, it just blows my mind. Um, that the one thing with my group that I go with, it's adventure consultants. It's a group out of New Zealand. They are easily the best in the business, and I'm not just saying that because I use them. That they are very highly regarded. They don't cut corners. You do pay a premium for them, but I'm happy to pay a premium because I know safety is absolutely uppermost in everything they do. And as I think I mentioned earlier, they do know me well because I've been on multiple climbs with them. They will check out your climbing CV and they will make a call on whether they will say yes or no, whether you can even come on the expedition. And even when you're on the expedition, I can use an example on the Denali expedition I was on. We looked at the two groups of us heading up the mountain at the same time. So there was our group of five climbers and three guides and another entirely separate group, same guiding company, but separate group, you know, five and three. So we were tic-tacking up the mountain. We got to that high camp I was referring to earlier. And because they're evaluating you all the way up the mountain, the guides actually said to three members of their climbing team, they said, we actually are not going to let you move forward up the mountain and have a summit attempt. We just don't think your skills are where they need to be. It's not an easy call for these guides to make, but obviously, you know, they're thinking about their own welfare because you take people up the mountain that then puts them in danger. But people pay a lot of money to go on these trips, but the money doesn't come into it. You know, they just, as I said, and that to me, when I looked at that, I felt for these people, obviously, but also just showing to me, well, I'm with the right guys. They, they, you know, they are ruthless in their evaluation and and I expect them to be ruthless with me too. You know, I if if I was falling short and I was doing things that were going to imperil me, other climbers, the guides, I would want someone to tell me because it's not what I'm about. I, everything I'm doing, and I should have said up front, you know, I have, I have no death wishes. People sort of think this is some sort of, people see, use the word extreme. I don't see any of this as being extreme. As I said, I understand the risk I'm taking. I accept the risk. I understand also there's things I can't control. There's avalanches and there's... Seracs can break off and fall like they did a couple of years ago up in the ice wall. Like there's things that you just are completely out of your control, but the controllables and the group I'm with, I know that they can handle that and I don't put myself in any level of danger and I, I won't jeopardise my ability to come home without my full set of fingers and toes, you know. So that's that's how I roll. On that, I'm interested. So the, the mindset piece around the controlling the uncontrollables, how how do you find, I guess, clarity in going, this is how I need to deal with it? Well, the one thing with particularly a lot of the guides, because it's a New Zealand company, and you go, as I said, oh, I spent a lot of time in New Zealand at, at now, Mount Cook, not climbing it, not climbing it. But um, you've mentioned that. And, and I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to put that somewhere very bold in the episode notes. <laughs> but the New Zealand guides, I think there's a, uh, the, I can't, I'm going to get it wrong, but there's an international guiding. It's not like you become a qualified guide. And what they have to do to actually become a qualified mountain guide is extraordinary. It's not just a six-month thing. Like it's a multi-year, uh, incredible level of expertise and discipline required and, and hours on the mountains. Some of the times we failed to summit Mount Cook was like we had gotten significant way up mountain and they could see the snowpack and they actually dig into the snowpack and they can read it they can actually show you the layers of snow on on our melted section you know because obviously the sun's hit something before snows land on they can explain everything to you in the snowpack and they can say to you sort of like they did to me 
whilst it's cold here now, it's 5 a.m. in the morning, you know, if we keep going up and when we come back down and touch this snowpack with a bit more sun, sun it's just going to go. So we are turning around now because a couple of hours, this will become an avalanche if you put weight on it. So when you've got that level of expertise around you and, you know, you just rely upon it inherently, I, I said to you the other day, when, I, when people tell me to turn around, I don't argue, I just say, okay, where do you want me to stand? And I'll start moving in that direction, you know. So, again, when I, it's like those aren't controllables. They're clearly controllables, but I've got, I've got some highly skilled people around me who I rely upon and I trust them inherently. You have to trust them inherently. You know, their, their judgment is just, it's sacrosanct and I don't in any way, shape or form question it. And, and, and we were talking about the other day, I pay for that and I'm happy to pay for that. You know, you'd be idiotic, frankly. And that, that's probably diverge you a little bit. You do see a lot of other people, other providers who, look, I appreciate, I should say, this is a very expensive pursuit. It's a first world problem. I said, you know, I don't recommend it to a lot of people. This is nothing about what I'm doing is cheap, which is annoying because, frankly, I'd like more people to be able to do it, but it's just the reality of the situation. But I do see a lot of other um, guiding companies out there and the, the rates they're providing going, how is this, you know, all they're doing is, for me is cutting corners. Like I effectively have a guide and me. So I have some one person and I'm going to have other sheriffs support there watching me. Whereas you look at some of these, they must have one guide to five people, 10 people. And that just adds a level of potential risk that I just, look, some people are prepared to live with that. Some people, that's all they can afford. Now that's all they can afford, fine. But then that's a risk factor I'm not prepared to accept. So look, there's a lot of, as I said, I'm in a fortunate position that I can afford to put myself with the guiding company that can afford me not only the best guides, um, the most highly skilled guides, but also things like oxygen. Like you can't, getting back to what that I was referring to earlier about the Nepalese government, um, you can't climb without oxygen, you know, on your first summits. So they decree that you must have oxygen. And the, the level of oxygen that they afford to us is such that, you know, we won't run out. Some of the guiding companies, I know they might only might take up two or three models. Like I think we've got five or seven or something. Like So we can probably even sit there at night while we're that night trying to prepare for sleeping to go. You know, we will be on O's. Once you get to about 8,000 metres, you've sort of got to be on oxygen. So um, it's just things little, it's all the little things which you're paying for. But also, um, and again, getting slow off track, some of the guiding companies you see will say turn up for 30 days. And it's like, well, 30 days, you're halving your ability in not only weather window, but your ability to acclimatise. So the whole package, the, the guys I'm going with, they've been doing this the longest, and this is basically they're setting you up for the best possible ability to climb the mountain. It's up to you, really. If they'll give you the weather window, it's up to you to stay fit to get to the top. I'm interested to to ask, hopefully I can ask you a few questions which make you self-reflect a little bit. Well, uh, well, I know you've done so much work in the lead up. It's it's an individual sport, but it's also a, a team sport. How like how does that play out in these scenarios, the individual and the team? Well, the team, I suppose, is is less important here, but it's still important um, in the sense that you are really living in everyone's pockets. Um, it's not so like when I when I demurred a little bit there, I was talking more about base camp. The base camp is quite, quite a bit to some people, which for me, the things I know I'm about to experience are extremely luxurious. Like I will have my own tent at base camp. I actually have a cot in my tent, unheard of. You know, so like the ability to actually get a great night's sleep 
is I can't wait for base gear. And then you, we've got our own, like there's a complete tent. When I say tent, these are huge things for communications and like an office effectively for the support staff. And then there's just a kitchen tent, you know, just for us. And, and there's just an area for us just to relax on beanbags and watch movies because there's a lot of downtime. So we're paying for that. And it's sort of, but you, you, they spend so much time. So in terms of teamwork, as you move up the mountain, you really are getting in really in each other's pockets. I, I referred to Beck earlier. She's going to be my tent buddy. So we will be spending weeks in the tent. You know, there'll be times when we move up the mountain, as I said, like maybe at Camp 3. I know Camp 3 basically is on the side of the Lotsy face. So the, the tent areas are just carved out of the Lotsy face. You will just be in your tent. There's really nowhere to walk around. You know, if you, you're outside your tent, you're effectively roped up on a fixed line. So basically when you get there, you are in your tent. And when I say you're in your tent, you're probably in your tent for a day or two. So the teamwork, it's, it's critical that you all in some way get along. And it's one of those, that sounds like a bit of kumbaya. I have been on the odd trip where there's a, can be a few people that start to get on your nerves. But like, I like to think I'm fairly easygoing. Well, I know I am pretty easygoing. But you do see a little bit of selfish behaviours. Like you've really got to be thinking, of, you're right, it's not like a football team, but it is absolutely everything you're doing, you can't be taking some resource that someone else might need. Like for instance, up at high camp a couple of years ago, people were stealing oxygen bottles and you're sort of going, that just blows your mind because that basically could have and did ruin some people's summit attempts because they, they didn't have what they expected to be there. So yeah, like there is, there is teamwork in, in a very real sense. And also then when you look at things like with your guide, for instance, when you're walking along, it's a bit hard to explain, but when you walk along, things like the glacier, you've got a rope between you. And and that is, there is a level, what you're doing now, I know you're just walking along, but what you're doing actually takes a degree of skill that you're sort of maintaining a certain tension on the rope because as I said, you're worried, falling into crevasse is what you're worried about. So actually you're doing something in a very regimented way. Um, so if something bad happens, you can immediately react to it. So there is, there is elements of teamwork, but you're dead right. A lot of it is completely down to you and your own mental fortitude. Obviously, the physicality is a huge part. You've got to be able to physically do this. This is a physically demanding thing. But the mental part, like and I have moments, like I won't bore you with some of the specifics, but I do every single time you're doing this, you go through, like a human nature, you go through little periods where you're going, I, I just want to tap out. I just want to turn around. This is, this is hurting too much. And then for whatever reason, you sort of just go, I'll just take 10 more steps and then maybe it washes away. You start thinking about something else. But like I have had, I absolutely have periods of self-doubt. Like there's, and I will have periods of self-doubt on this trip. I'm certain that, you know, what I'm about to do to my body is not normal. Not even slightly. I, I want to ask a couple of questions and we can reflect on it afterwards maybe. But um, in terms of where you're at now, you're a couple of weeks out really as we're recording this from where you head off. So in terms of physically and mentally, where are you at out of 10? You can't, you better not be choosing a seven. I always say you can't choose a seven. No, well, look, if you asked me this question, um, start of February, I would have been pretty high. Um, I, I've been training since January, start of January 2022, really ramped up on a six. I've got, I've had a PT for years, great guy, Charles. So he's been getting me right for all my previous climbs. And there's this particular training program called the Uphill Athlete. Adventure consultants always recommend. So six months out, I've been religiously following that with Charles sort of sort of helping me. 
And Alan, the odd little niggle in here, like I'm 50 years old. So I, you know, there's parts of my body that are creaky. So there's no doubt I've got things that I work my way around and I'm okay with that. But um, so I was, things were working great. Start of February, um, mid Feb, I was on a sort of Sunday run. I was about 15 Ks into the run and my calf just grabbed and I was like, what the hell is that? And long story short, I had an MRI last week and I've got this what's called a soleus injury in my calf, which it's it's not the big muscle on the back of the calf. It's the one sits in in front of that. So it's it's basically what I've got is unsurprisingly an overuse injury. So I've stopped running, but it doesn't really hurt me walking at the moment. So my training from that point, I can see very clearly on my graphs, things are sort of on an upward trajectory. Since that point, I've basically hit a plateau because I can't go for runs anymore. Um, and that's fine because my fitness is at a point where it, I've got what's called, you know, in this program is we're building your engine. My engine is uh, the amount of, I'm astonished the amount of load. Like my Friday, Saturday, Sundays, I'm putting a lot of Ks and, and altitude under my legs. And my, I, every morning I wake up and there's no pain in my legs. My legs just feel ready to go again. Like they're just, they're just tuned them to that point where I feel bulletproof until I've had this little calf niggle. So look at, at, at the moment, if you had to ask me where I'm sitting, I am, as I would have said, I was close to a nine at the start of February. I'm, like, I'm probably back to about, I know you didn't want me to say seven, I'm probably about an eight or seven because... Yeah, no, that's good. You can't say seven, so eight. I have a little bit of um, I'm second-guessing myself when I'm out hiking at the moment because I'm going, is this going to start hurting? Like I'm even to the point, I might have said to the other day, I'm cotton-wooling myself, my term, Normally, I, I said I'd go out to Scenic Rim and do a lot of hikes on the weekend, but I'm, I'm not doing any of that at the moment because they're quite rocky, uneven terrain. So I'm just going up and down Mount Coosa at the moment. And my God, I'm just, you know, Groundhog Day, you cannot believe. And so there's there's parts there, like, for instance, this weekend, I'm meant to do two-and-a-half-hour hike on Sunday, four-hour hike on Sunday. And there's a particular amount of, of altitude I'm due to gain and wearing weights. But I'm even going to probably just do these loops on this particular trail because I don't want to get too far away from the car if I start feeling a let. So there's there's a degree of second guessing going in my mind, and it's more a case of like my, my leg doesn't hurt at the moment, but I just, just worried that I might push myself to the point where I get back with that little bit of pain. So I'm just being cautious. I'm being smart about it, which is something I didn't wasn't when I was younger. I'd normally by now I'd sort of run through the pain and probably done you know another injury. So. Everything's on track. Everything I'm saying, nothing's not on track, but it's just I have that little thing that's just hanging out there sort of in the back of my mind. How how have you fit this in and structured your weeks to actually, like what has been the day-to-day routine um, and what does a week look like? Well, uh, Monday's my day off, but I've been um, putting in, I've actually started doing Pilates just this year. One of my employer, Hamilton Block, is a phenomenal firm. One of the things that they absolutely drive here is culture and they don't just talk about it, they live and breathe it and they actually try and get us to do things that we don't normally do. I've never done plays in my life and, and the incentive in doing these things is if you do a certain amount, you actually get a week's extra leave. So I thought, well, why don't I, number one, I've never done it. Number two, it's going to improve my flexibility because my flexibility is shocking. I haven't touched my toes in about 30 years and I'm probably about this far off from now. I think it was about, I know it's a bit hard to say on a podcast. I was about 30 centimetres off and probably about 10 centimetres off now. So like it's, it is working. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not young anymore, but so that, that's on my Monday. So Mondays is, is still fairly relaxed. 
And then look, the rest of the week is, it's a range of doing a day of weights. And then there's two days of what I call, they're really a high intensity workout, but I move them back down to medium intensity. The training is more geared around the heart rate and maintaining a certain heart rate. The reality is, and I saw a video on point on YouTube with the particular people who run this program of mine, and it made unbelievable sense to me. Like one of the statements was, there's no point getting your body up to a certain heart rate. Because I'm used to, my, all the training I used to do was just flogging yourself to you absolutely bent over and, you know, you, you're sort of cramping and and because that feels like you've done something, you're pushing yourself and they go, well, there's no point doing that because you'll never get your heart rate to those levels as when you're climbing these mountains. You know, like you're basically, you're moving in the range of 120 to 140 sort of thing. And if you can just basically build a base that where, I would do it, for instance, this morning I was doing the workout, but I can sit there and talk and my heart rate will be at that, but it's not hurting me. It's just, it's like I'm effectively walking, even though I'm doing something quite frenetic. So I do two of those sessions a week. Fridays is generally an um, endurance session, which is try and find the steepest hill you can. So there's a hill in Toowong here, it's the steepest hill in Brisbane. So I just, you put a 20 kilo pack on and you just for an hour and a half, you're going up and down this thing. So it's not fun. You know, cannot believe the amount of podcasts I choose through podcasts, you know, like because I'm spending hours on my own in the dark. And yes, most of, this, most of this stuff is done early morning before work. I'm generally done by six or seven o'clock. Even like on the weekends when I'm doing four hours, I'll generally be done by eight. I'm an early riser. I don't sleep a lot. That's not something I'm happy about. I wish I could sleep more, but I'm generally, I'm fully awake by four. So just get out and do it. Summer was easier because it's just light, you know, so you just now just got to put a head torch on. So I don't see a lot of people until it gets, you know, six, seven o'clock. But it's funny, it's it's all I don't do meditation or anything. I'm not I'm not saying I have a problem with that, I just don't do it. But a lot of the time I can't even tell you where the time's gone. I just sit, I listen to a podcast. I'm I'm guilty of listening to too many true crime podcasts. I just tune out. Like I just literally next thing I know it's finished. That sounds silly, but for three or four hours, I honestly don't know what's happened. Like, it's just, it gets to the point now where I don't even, it's not like, and it's not even like, because I know that the thing is, because this goal is so large, I don't, there's not a single, because so, other things I've done, occasionally we've all done, you roll over, you hit the alarm, you go, oh, I can't be bothered. I, like, in the last six months, I've missed two days, and that was because I had a bit of gastro. Like, there's the only reason. So every other, there's not a single day I wake up and go, I'm not doing this day. Like every single day I'm out of bed and I just know that this is, there's no, I cannot cut a corner here. I'm kicking myself, you know, if I was. So all the way to the, I won't be tapering. I'll be basically doing work mm. all the way through. Sorry, I should say then Saturday, Sunday, generally doing hikes or runs. No runs anymore, as I said earlier. So then long hikes, weighted pack, and just generally trying to do a certain amount of altitude gained. So, you know, thousand metres sort of thing. Bloody hell. Do you basically, like, so with the work side of things, is it nearly building in as if you were leaving the firm as such because you're away for two months? Uh, well. A, pra- a practice exit. <laughs> for, well, fortunately, I suppose the way we work, I have a very capable team around me. I have one of my team members, Georgina, who is sort of ride shotgun on most hours with me. So effectively, I, I will have to do some what are called handover notes to a colleague to make sure he's across things but i have colleagues who are basically already in these matters and obviously as i move towards the leave date anything new coming in i'm sort of probably not 
picking up in any meaningful way because it's just going to be a double handling exercise. So look, it's actually not as bad as you would think it would be. The fortunate thing is that when I've been in this role, new job for a year, and when I started, it was part of the negotiations that I want to do this and they accepted that. So fortunately, given what I do as well, litigation, sometimes you've got a big court case. So I don't have any of those things that have just touched wood that hasn't happened. I don't know why or how, but I've just been very lucky. I'm not disappointing a single client by going and doing this. Um, so everything has really worked out quite well in that regard. Well, and I think it's probably like it's probably testament to actually the team that you guys are building where it's not just the whole thing's not relying on you. It's actually, that's incredible. And, and look, at, I can honestly say, because um, I've never been to Nepal before, but um, I think it was about 2018, I was all, I was this close to signing up. Well, I, pretty, I pretty much had signed up to a trip to climb another mountain there called Amadaba, which is a beautiful peak. Um, and I had to pull the pin on that because I had a trial coming up and I just I couldn't do it to the client where I was, you know, a bit three years of me working on the matter and then sort of saying, well, when it gets to the pointy end, I'm heading off. So I sort of had to, I made the right decision. I, you know, I would prefer to have done the right thing by the client there. So that's not happening this time. I'm not, um, no one is, is sitting there gritting their teeth at what I'm doing. Well, maybe my mum. <laughs> okay, my final question. I'm interested whether you achieve the summit or not, what do you want to say to yourself on the other side? And we'll have the recording here. What advice would you give to yourself irrespective of what happens over the next two to three months? Well, I suppose it's just, it, it's probably trite to say, but it's it, there's been various little things or moments, snapshots throughout your life where you've done, you've, you've approached something that's extraordinarily difficult, but you've come out the other side. And it's just, it will just be, I suppose, another testament to me that you, if you just focus enough and you will yourself enough that you can do it. It's nothing grand, grander than that. It's just like I constantly amaze myself on some of the things I have achieved in this particular realm that you can use your mind just to move past seemingly immovable objects. The mental part of this is probably what I enjoy the most. Um, and it really does constantly amaze me the ability to sort of push yourself to a point where you just your body's saying enough you know but you you just it's basically the last 10 percent of it is all your mind is going no you're not quitting you just got to keep cracking on so i'm certain there's going to be periods of this um in the dark when i'm leaving that tent up on the south coal going what in god's name are you about to do and there's going to be parts up that hill where as i said i'll be on my own in the dark i'll be just seeing little head torches up in front of me going I don't want to be here. So hopefully I'll be able to say to myself, you know, you've done it. And again, your, your mind has gotten you there. Well, Trent, good luck with it. I know we'll certainly be cheering you on and can't wait to see how it all goes for you. Well, thank you. You know, as I said the other day, it's blown me away. that It's not something I share with a lot of people, but um, the word is slowly filling around and people are genuinely um interested in the pursuit um and i will be providing people with some links and things like that to sort of follow it adventure consultants generally has a, a blog they're running and on particular on summer days obviously there's a lot of people who like to you know because there's radios there's a lot of radio action going on that day so there's regular updates on summer day where people are at on the mountain sort of thing so um i'll be sure to pass on those details well i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did I said kind of in the beginning, I've never really had the chance to sit down with someone before they go and embark on something truly extraordinary. And I think the statistics around Everest, only a touch over 11,000 people have summited it. So our fingers and toes are crossed 
Trent, we are absolutely barracking for you from back home in Australia and we can't wait to chat about your experience on the other side. Go get them.